Hey everyone, welcome to the Urban Robot Cat Podcast. I'm your host, Travis Likens. I'm Chris RWK. And I'm Corey Strange Cat Toys. And we're here for episode six. It's been, uh, we're rolling into the month of December here, so it's been nice and chilly here in Ohio. I don't know about you, Chris, but I'm guessing it's probably really cold. It's been chilly. <laughs> oh, chilly's, chilly's not the right word. It's just been bone chilling, maybe. It's just like, <laughs> we had, you know, we had some snow. I know you had some snow, too. Um but yeah, not, not as much as you guys. Cause I was trying to watch green Bay play the giants on Sunday. And I was like, what is going on? What is all this snow? <laughs> <laughs> it was weird. I mean, like on Staten Island, we, we had like more snow than in the city and stuff like that. But it was just like that weird, like, it's just like a weird snow that turned to ice real quick. It just, it just sucks. There's no other word for it. In our normal conversation about stickers, this probably means the stickers don't stick very well during this time, right? <laughs> oh, well, let me tell you. Depends on the, the the type of stickers too. If you if you're using something like the eggshell stickers and like anything below forty degree, they just like crack in your hands. It's pointless. Pro tip. <laughs> Speaking of stickers, I know that you got a package of stickers that I sent you that stickerfied made for us. They look absolutely amazing. These are really high quality stickers. They did a great job, and Corey, you should be getting yours in a day or two. I had to find a large envelope in order to send that gigantic one he sent us oh the big one for the bus for the bus yes yeah i'll start start putting all those out in the orders as they go out then yeah i mean i've I've had people asking for them already so it's a cool thing it's been getting nice reviews and and messages about the uh, podcast people seem to like it yeah when i was out at designer con a lot of people stopped by so they've been listening to you know the show talking about you know how much they enjoyed what we're talking about and what we're doing and um you know it was really cool to kind of meet some fans of something that we're doing when you know we just kind of put it out in the world and now we're kind of figuring out what people like about it, what they don't like about it. And uh, hopefully we can keep making these things happen for people. Yeah. And hopefully we don't have to, you know, put out any torches and get rid of any hosts. I'm just saying. You've been voted off. Just saying. So, Corey, how are things going down down your way? Oh, it's freezing here, too. You know, it's like uh, highs of 70s and lows of 45. Did you guys already pull out the, the winter parka? Oh, yeah. You know, I'm in my flannel. Turned all the fans off. Got the heaters going. No, no joke. I spoke to my aunt yesterday. She lives over in, I think, like the West Palm Beach area. And she was talking about how it was cold. And I'm like, all right, what's cold? And she's like, I don't know. It got down to like the 40s. And I was like, all right, that's, I could see that being chilly. But she's talking about breaking out a winter coat. I'm like, just just don't go outside. The sun's going to come back out anytime soon. It's it's Florida. Yeah, it's really not that bad. I'll, I'll get out in like a flannel and then like sun hits me and I just got to take it off because I'm instantly sweating. So it's it's really not cold until it hits nighttime. Sounds like such a hard life. We're here for the episode, so let's go ahead and roll into what we have here is a special guest, I'm going to say. He's an artist that was kind of doing things He's been doing things a very, very long time, but he, he holds a special place in the designer toy and uh, street art scene because he's somebody who was back in Dunny Series 3. And for many years, people in the New York area are aware of his street art that was a part of many ad campaigns and sticker art that's been throughout time. So if we can, let's bring on Abe Lincoln Jr. How you been doing? Uh, I'm doing good. I've just been, uh, like, like you said, I've just been uh, busy making art and working and doing the do. Very nice. I was going to say, should we uh, do any back history uh, on you as far as like the art world? Yeah, sure. I basically, I'm all self-taught. Basically, I learned about art and design. I used to do flyers for hardcore shows back in the 80s. I came up in the hardcore scene out in California, like in the early 80s. So I used to get into shows free for doing flyers for like the venues that were having, you know, bands play. So that was pretty fun. I used to do flyers for, you know, like it wasn't for Black Flag. It was for the venue. But, you Mm -hmm. know. 
shows a black flag played and you know i mean i saw the dead kennedys a billion times that kind of stuff so that's kind of where it started i went to art high school but me and school didn't really get along very well so i was kind of like teenage dropout punk rock skate <laughs> punk kid you know so basically i kind of cut my teeth doing that stuff and you know just kind of kept at it i remember in the 90s seeing like shepherd fairies you know the the original andre's got a posse sticker and going, oh, okay, that's cool. And then when he kind of started to blow up, I was like, oh, he kind of just made punk rock palatable for galleries. Cool. You know, and that kind of got me, that kind of got me started doing stuff under the Abe name. Cause I was like, oh, fuck, I could do that shit. We did all that shit when we were kids. And that kind of got me started again, actually seeing that and kind of all the other stuff that was happening. Kind of early 2000s is when I got started doing the Abe Lincoln Jr. thing. Nice. So were you San Francisco area? Yeah. Or it's like Gilman, was that Gilman Street? And no, I venues? tapped out before Gilman. To me, Gilman is like too late. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it was kind of like after the whole San Francisco scene kind of started dying. And a lot of the bands, like a lot of the bands that were like hardcore bands started doing other stuff. You know, a lot of them went glam or whatever. But at a certain point, like there was like when crossover happened. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, I could listen to punk rockers playing bad heavy metal or I could just listen to thrash. And so I jumped ship and I switched to thrash. Metallica and stuff like that was from the San Francisco area, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was when they were actually good. So. <laughs> and it's crazy. It's crazy, too, because like their first record label was based out in Jersey, Metal Blade. Right. Yeah, totally. And, which is just so, so weird all the way across the country. Yeah, it kind of goes back to what we talked about kind of with MCA about the trade and tapes, right? So like back in the metal days, people would mail the tapes back and forth. I'm sure somebody in, in New Jersey got that tape and then was like, these people, we got to find them. Yeah, totally. It's definitely a nice change of pace from like, you know, all the kind of corny hair metal that was happening in like, you know, whatever Van Halen and shit like that. So once they kind of stepped up the tempo i was like okay i'm in so when you were doing all that work were you just going like under your your real name or no actually at the time i think like 84 or something like that and so the only stuff we ever saw of graffiti was like in fucking hip-hop movies like all the rap movies of the day mm. like beat street and stuff like that so i had a friend who was a total klepto so he would go rack pain all the time and he was very like you know hey let's let's try this graffiti stuff and so we would do that. And so I had a name that I came up with for my quote unquote graffiti name. And I kind of used that for flyers as well. And the, the name was Chef Boyardee. <laughs> it's pretty dumb, but whatever. <laughs> I was like fucking 14. So makes sense. Punk. Yeah, right. It's so commercial consumerism kind of thing that it's mm -hmm. punk rock on its own. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, it was the whole idea. I was trying to go for like something that was not, you know, anti. Like I think my like the the logo that I had made for it, CBA or whatever, and the A was the anarchy symbol. <laughs> you know, like stuff like that. So when did you make your move across the country? I moved out here in '91. Uh, I moved out to New York in '91, and uh, you know, it's a typical New York story. I kind of showed up here with like you know a couple hundred bucks in my pocket, <laughs> trying to figure out what the fuck I was gonna do. And, you know, I got my first apartment with my homeboy in Times Square when it was still totally porned out and fucking skanky. So that was a fun introduction to New York City. That's back when you used to be able to buy Kung Fu videos and throwing stars everywhere. Yeah, totally. Definitely different. People people who go, who go to Times Square now don't understand what it was like even in even in the 90s. Like they just. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's pretty it's pretty funny how much it's transformed. You know, there was like that playland arcade yeah. and like i think it's where the hard rock cafe is now yeah on the and corner like, yeah it was like on 43rd or whatever and uh, we used to go there every sunday morning like still drunk from the night before <laughs> just go play <laughs> pinball 
you know, or whatever and hang out. But yeah, it was definitely super sketch back then. So once you get to New York, a little bit later, you start doing the stickers and the poster art that you kind of were reinterpreting advertising and putting into the subway stops, bus stops, right? It's mainly phone booths. So what inspired you to start doing that? Was it just kind of like a love for advertising and like making a fun thing or is it all traced back to that punk rock poster scene? Uh, no, it's kind of like there's really not a whole lot of edge left to street art anymore. You know, it's all like kind of people trying, like everyone's got a career path. There's there's no kind of outlaw left to it. It's easy into galleries and stuff. Yeah, like it's people like don't a fast it. track. It's yeah. like people are just doing it to get into, to get a shot at Chelsea, you know? Yeah, it's it's community college. Yes, it's, oh my God, that's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> that's what it is. You know, it's like half the time you see these people, they graduate from some type of art school. They do a little bit of street art. Then they turn into doing murals and then they turn into a contemporary artist or a political artist yeah so basically like to me you know as far as the ad takeovers go those still feel like they're outlawed i mean it's kind of a gray area of what you're doing but anyway i started doing those uh i met somebody another street artist who had access to them and and we just kind of clicked because we were both kind of hating on what was going on and there he was kind of like well let me tell you how it's done and so that that message was passed on to me for me like going big and going with these phone booth ads or even like you know when i first started i was just doing art you know what i mean i was doing hand painted stuff and just putting it up most of what i love about street art is like the the getting over you got that feeling again by doing it that you know going through the phone booths as opposed to just kind of going to freeman's alley and cops <laughs> holding your coat while you wheat paste something you know what i mean oh all right so probably gotta explain what freeman's alley is to to corey and travis it's it's like technically you know it's not allowed but it's allowed one of those kind of things and then they clean it up every once in a while and then everybody runs back to go put stuff up yeah it's a street art destination because they let people get in there and do their thing how difficult is it to get into those phone booths uh if you know how it's very easy it only takes a couple minutes it's uh, it's okay. literally it's like a one, two, three thing. Basically, it's a special kind of screw. You have to know the right bit for it. You got a power drill and you pop them open and you put it up and roll it down and close it up, drill it back in and then walk away. Are you like scoping like at three o'clock in the morning or you, do you have like a special uh, like bone no, you guys? They just think yeah, you're changing them out. You basically do it in broad daylight because, you know, I mean, like you look shady if you're doing it at night. So like if you go do it, right. like I have, a, I have like an orange worker guy vest. And I just do that. And I, I look like a worker guy, you know, like I could just, I could easily be a, a teamster. So, um, you know, nobody's really like looking at me like with the fish eye, you know, I mean, when I first started, I, I was up in, working up in Midtown and I was putting a poster up and they have, so the phone booth has three sides and they have two sides that are kind of movie poster size. And then in the back, it's like this gigantic poster. And I was trying to put one of those in. And it was like, I don't know, maybe three in the afternoon or something like that. And so I'm putting the poster in and I'm fighting with the poster to get it into the place. And then there's like a piece of plastic that you have to fit in there. And so I'm standing there and I'm wrestling with it. And I turn around, there's a cop with the lights on right behind me. And I'm just <laughs> like, fuck. And so I was like, all right, well, I'm either, I either run or I commit. And if I run, I'm definitely fucked. So let me just commit and do this. And you know, I did it and it turned out that he was just rolling through and talking to some other, you know, some traffic cop or something like that. The orange vest makes you freaking invisible because nobody pays attention to those folks. The high visibility vest makes you invisible. <laughs> yeah, totally. That's the best part about it. Cause like nobody wants to know the guy who's putting the signs up in the subway. And are, are you trying to spread out and like not hit up the same spots for a while? 
the Lower East Side's got some booths that I that I generally I'll I'll go hit, you know, because it's just kind of a high traffic area. Um, yeah. I used to I used to stay out of the Lower East Side. It's like petting zoo of street art over there. It's so easy, you know, and like everybody's looking for it. But in the past couple like years, I've just figured I just spread it around everywhere, and so and I don't work in Midtown anymore. So it's like <laughs> a lot easier just to kind of hit stuff downtown because I'm down there now. I, I loved when you did that one. The uh, all the sides done, and I think it was the Jesus one. I did that where they dropped the ball on New Year's Eve at like, and so I went in there and I did that at like 9 a.m. on Monday morning. It was a pretty funny one, and so the posters was from the series that i do called jesus wasn't a dick and it has like you know this kind of sanrio cute sanrio jesus and he says stuff like hey guys new commandment mind your damn business you know kind of addressing like the hypocrisy of a lot of christian types and so i figured i wanted to hit it up in times square because down the lower east side probably a lot less christians than there are running around in times square visiting so i hit that spot and that was like totally nuts because when I was putting those in, the side ones are a piece of cake. So I was putting in the big, the big poster and it was, I was struggling with it. And there was a guy from the business improvement district and he was chatting me up. He's like, Hey, what you putting in there, buddy? I'm like, Oh, you know? And so I have to like, kind of pretend to be the, the sign guy, you know? <laughs> okay. um, and he, he was kind enough to help me get a problem corner in there and stuff like that. And as I'm doing it, I turn around and like, if you're, as you know, Times Square's got tons of giant digital billboards, right? And so there's this H&M right across the street from where I was at. And they had the Today Show or Good Morning America or something up on there. And I look up and I turn around, I look up and it's got like, you know, the host and some celebrity talking and they've got a shot of the street behind them. And I see a little orange vest fucking with the phone booth in the background. And I was like, oh, Jesus Christ. So I just had to turn around and kind of like not, you know, it was pretty, you know, I've never tried anything that kind of bold before. So it was like, so I was like, all right, I just have to turn back around, finish what I'm doing and get the hell out of here. I remember when you did that because on my lunch break, I ran up to go see it. <laughs> right. Well, it only, and that's the bummer part about it yeah. is like, it's like a high traffic area. So it only lasted a day, which was yeah. a bummer because like the posters were mad expensive, but I kind of felt if I was going to go big, then that was the place to do it. Is that typical about a day you get out of it? No, a- actually it depends on where you're at. The company has a schedule and I don't have no clue what it is. It's just luck of the draw. Some days they run a day. I think it also depends on where you're at. I think there are like high traffic areas that are more valuable. So they swap out the posters more. You know, I had stuff, even the Lower East Side run for a day, but then there's other parts of town where I've had them run for months. How long did that Blumpkins stay up? That shit is hilarious. I do like a multiple series of posters. One of them is for this fake fast food restaurant chain called Sloppy Jones. And so it's basically got this cute kawaii hamburger mascot and then something really obnoxious in the poster. And I use a lot of stock art in that because I actually, I totally am kind of obsessed with stock photography. I have this picture of this, uh, you know, it says Sloppy Jones. And then it's got a picture of like some hot fudge sundaes and the tagline in it is like, you'll never forget your first Blumpkin. And then I did another one where you'll love our piping hot Cleveland steamers. And then had like a cute hipster couple eating hamburgers. Those ones they ran for like, uh, I don't know. They ran probably for like between a week and two weeks, you know, which is kind of, that's kind of average. Like I put one down on Canal Street. The other ones, I think I just put down on Lower East Side. So that had that high turnover. I have one project that where I, where I curate called Keep Fighting, which is ad takeovers. And I reach out to artists and I have them interpret Keep Fighting, you know, in whatever progressive way that they feel. And then I go put those posters up. 
Um, and then I do, and I do collaborate, uh, you know, I collaborate with Maya Orion on another one called a presidential parody where we kind of make, we basically make fun of Trump, uh, you know, with <laughs> different posters. We just put up a new series of one, which is, you know, one's called the impeachment, which has the logo of, you know, the apprentice. And then it's got Nancy Pelosi saying you're fired to Trump. And that famous, you know, the, that famous picture of her standing up to him, literally, you know, it's, I've, got, I've got a bunch of different irons in the fire when nice. it comes to the takeovers and stuff. So and I haven't actually done any of my own stuff in a minute, which, you know, I have to remedy, but I'll probably start hitting up. I'll start doing that again in the springtime because I have some ideas of things that I want to do for that, which kind of require warmer weather. One of the earliest pieces that I remember was when you had went into the one of the Mac stores, one of the mm-hmm. Apple stores, and you had uh, uploaded the Char character right. on all of the computer screens yeah, and all yes. the laptops. So I, it, it ties in 15 years later. That Yeah, definitely. I, yeah, a friend of mine was like, you know, you can go in and, you know, change all the desktops at the Mac store, don't you? And I was like, no. <laughs> That was one of the first things that they put me on Wooster Collective with. Like I did like a little feature on my stickers. Uh, Char is this little pooping bird that I have. He was my main character for the first couple of years. And then like now he's kind of like my Mickey Mouse. Like he's just like my logo. Again, like the thing I think the thing I like best about it is the get over factor. As far as your movement into toys, how did you kind of first get into the toy scene and then moving on to a dunny and then further resins and customs and everything you've done since you got into the toy scene how did that kind of come to be when i first started doing my stickers i worked down in soho and i was real close to this bookstore called zaka which was like a japanese which like they had like a lot of japanese design books and they had the original pete fowler monsterism toys oh wow that's a, that's a that's a back pull yeah like 2004 or something and i was like totally mesmerized by them and i was like wait a second you mean you open the bag and but you don't know what you're going to get that's so cool <laughs> you know um and they had like the original Japanese Sony toys. Like I think James Jarvis did a bunch of them. And like, you know, like there, there was like a, there was a whole run that Sony did with different artists, uh, but they were really iconic designer toys of the time. And so I've started collecting the little monsterisms and I got a couple of the big monsterisms and then kind of fell into like just following that whole world. And then Kid Robot opened up. I don't know how I wound up there, but I wound up at the very first Dunny release party for the first series. And I met Tristan Eaton and I met Superdue and like a couple of the other artists that were involved in the series. And again, I don't really remember how I found out about it, but I was like, hey, it's that cool toy stuff. So let me go check it out. I did a thing for an online magazine. I did an article for an online magazine. And so one of the guys who runs it, turns out it was Kid Robot's creative director. You know, after a couple of years, he asked me if I wanted to do a dunny. I was like, yeah, sure, why not? You know, and so I did the Dead Abe Lincoln Dunny, which I'm pretty, I'm still pretty proud of because it's kind of super obnoxious. <laughs> <laughs> and if people haven't seen it, it's basically the Dunny figure is like this little bunny rabbit that Kid Robot made. And so I basically made an Abe Lincoln, like a super cute Kawaii Abe Lincoln bunny with a big bullet hole in his head and a giant like blood splatter on the back of his head. I turned it in. They said, okay, we're going to use it. So I'm like, okay, great. Awesome. And as Comic-Con came through, I found out just kind of by chance that it was going to be the Chase toy, which I was just like, holy shit, I can't believe it's the Chase. It was kind of like a dream come true, you know, to have your toy be picked to be the Chase toy out of the whole series. Later that year, they were in the Cooper Hewitt Design Triennial, which is the Smithsonian Design Museum. And they had a kid robot thing and they put my 
toy in there. And I was like totally geeking out on that. And so from there, that kind of like bumped me up a couple notches in urban art land. I started getting invited to do customs and uh, and stuff like that and to design other toys. But, you know, with most of the designer toy scene, like I think like 50 percent of the toys that are planning on coming out don't come out for whatever reason, like production issues and things like that. So I did a bunch of designs for like uh, Trexies and stuff like that. But those ones didn't. They just wound up not coming out, you know, that those series got canceled or whatever. And then I started doing custom toys. Proud to say that I was on the forefront of using glitter hot rod paint before it became a thing. I had a, a one of Ad Funcher's yokai bears and uh, I did. It was like brown metallic flake that turned colors, like turned to a green. Turned to like, like the orange and the green. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so like it was like one of those ones, and uh, I had a guy who did hot rod paint in Ohio that I would send him out to, and he would do the paint jobs on them. But I would create the graphics, like uh, on uh, sticker vinyl, you know, kind of to create the graphics for the, all the details. Right. You know, in 2008, you know, when the economy shit the bed, everybody's disposable income kind of disappeared, so toys kind of took a huge hit. You know what I mean? Like nobody could afford to collect toys anymore. Uh, but it's nice now because it seems like it's coming back around again. Jankies are here now. And yeah, and I think um, even outside the like more platform toys, I feel like there's so much production going on for original designs and sculpts as well. Um, you know, there's a lot of companies making a lot of stuff at this point, and it seems to, like a lot of it's getting supported, um, which is you know really good to see here as you know the economy's kind of taken off a little bit, and it's good to see that artists are getting represented now we're making more toys and being able to get people what they want and out of those toys. Platform toys got played pretty hard before the bottom dropped out, like all like the kid robot and like, you know, everybody was doing like, you know, like CI boys, Trexies were kind of like, not like top tier as far as like, you know, but there was tons of stuff in the market. The market was totally flooded with stuff. What's a Trexie? <laughs> kid robot had the dunny, uh -huh. you know what I mean? And that was their platform. So like there was toy two R that had keys down the road, Trexy came out and they were kind of like the, I don't know, third or fourth wave of platform toys. And at that point, like, you know, they're, they're pretty cool looking toys, but, you know, it was just saturated at that point. Got to the point where it wasn't special anymore. You know what I mean? It was just like another, and I'm not knocking Trexy. I just mean that kind of like that saturation point where it was no longer like a cool, special thing it was just kind of more of the same the, the figure itself was kind of like a spear for a head and you know it had arms and legs and a body but artists did some cool stuff and they had a pretty decent lineup no the trexies had some really good stuff I didn't catch like you were saying it, it maybe missed the bubble or missed the wave it's just kind of one of those figures that what was that other brand that kind of came out towards the end um and they had like big release party and they had like three different platforms and it just like was a big flop you're thinking of a uh, dude box yes they had one figure that was like their main platform and then they had like three or four other figures you know they came out with some big names they had like a ron english piece and some you know other uk based artists but um, like you said they had big release parties and you know kind of rolled out with like a lot of overhead initially and uh, the figure just didn't land i guess the way you would think it would kind of came out at a tough time i feel like i feel like it came out in like 2000 like 11, 12, 13 timeframe, somewhere in there. And the toy scene hadn't really recovered from the global economy crash. And, you know, Kid Robot was kind of in its like floundering years where it didn't really know which direction it was going. You know, people kind of were gravitating away from the platform kind of toy, kind of like what Abe was talking about earlier. People started to get over the idea of collecting lots of platforms. And by that point, Dunny, 
and Android were like the two big platform toys, right? That were not that weren't like Funko Pop or you know these other um, like more mainstream platforms. So people just weren't willing to accept a new platform, right? They're they're like I'm I've got all, I've got 500 Dunnies and like 16 Androids or 20 Androids or whatever it was at that point, and they're like I'm not bringing in another platform that I'm going to have to collect all of. So that, I think that's kind of you know, as the Dunny was starting to slip and the Android became more of like less about designer toys, more about the Google collector versus the designer toy collector. I think that's where there was like this gap in the market. And that's where in like 2014, 15, 16, 17 timeframe, you start to see designer toys gravitating away from the platform toy more to the original sculpt, but the flood of those products coming over from China that like Corey brings in a lot of importing for his store. It's just a shift. Like the Dunny has never recovered. It's never recovered from that shift because the platform toy kind of became this thing that people were less interested in. And it's not to say, I mean, there's still some killer Dunnies that come out, right? Like there's some amazing Dunnies. Yeah, that whole new series that just came out, like J- that guy J. always does sick stuff. You know, his stuff is always sick and Junkum Zuno just did some and they're always sick. But also, like, you know, they went from being small runs to big runs and then the scarcity was gone that made them desirable in the first place. So I think what happened, too, is the people that came in in like the mid 2000s started collecting Dunny really heavily. There's a shelf life. And what happened is the people that collected those kind of graduated, right? They left. They started doing exactly what the Dunny was designed to create, which was fans of artists that eventually maybe started buying artwork. So like prints or paintings or whatever. And those people kind of graduated and went on. But the new class of people that came in to start collecting, the platform toy had kind of not become a thing. Like they to them, they started collecting more original sculpts from artists or toy. Like because a lot of the customizers, right, that were in that like late two thousands boom, started making resins and different you know different kinds of toys, which took people away from buying platform toys. They were buying original sculpts, and that kind of changed the toy market as a whole. Yeah, well, it was funny because I remember you know resin was a dirty word in the beginning. You know, like if you were doing resins, you weren't good enough to have a fucking a dunny. You know, it was kind of like the the was kind of the vibe that was going around. Like, you know, people weren't that interested. And then it flipped because like, you know, now resins like they're fucking super limited runs, you know, like they're they're all handcrafted, da, 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 which, you know, from an artistic standpoint, it's kind of the same thing with stickers. Uh, When I first started doing stickers. If you did hand-drawn stickers, you were an amateur. Like, the only people who did had printed stickers were, like, legit sticker people. Now, that's flipped now, where, like, I personally way prefer hand-drawn stickers over printed stickers. I mean, printed stickers are awesome. It's like, you know, like, who doesn't love stickers? But, but it's the hand-drawn stuff, because there's one of them. There's not a thousand of them, you know what I mean? It's a personal expression of an artist, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so it's kind of the same principle that like where kind of like what was considered corny at one point has flipped and has taken the the high road or whatever, you know. Are you surprised by how quickly super plastic became so big and a new platform and janky and all that? No, actually, I think that the timing was right. It's funny because I was like, wow, this is just like Kid Robot when they were fucking rad. They're doing it again, which is 
rare that that you know somebody can do that so it hats off to them the figures themselves are rad the designs are killer and it's good to see that it's like bubbling up again and that it's not like oh you remember the designer toy thing that happened in the early 2000s you know (laughs) yeah and i think too for designer toys it's always important to have some sort of platform toy in existence and the, the reason I believe that is because they're they're often a gateway, right? Janky or Kid Robot, you know, they can they can get toys into like places like, you know, back in the day, Kid Robot was in Urban Outfitters or like bookstores or, you know, the, all these places where toys can get to that somebody like me, a small producer, I, I'm not going to get into Urban Outfitters or, you know, <laughs> like Barnes & Noble or even FYE because like to fill those stores, I have to produce so much product that I don't currently produce that much product, right? You know, and those kind of companies have to exist in order to get people to find a company like myself for the most part. Yeah, absolutely. It's nice to see that it's all kind of coming back around again. I was pleasantly surprised by Super Plastic across the board, just kind of the quality of the stuff and the fact that they kind of seem to be doing it again. You know, like they've got the same formula of the Dunny, but it's like a new thing and it's like different. You know, Huck is a killer designer and Paul, of course, is like he's got the magic touch when he's got the magic touch. You know what I mean? The piece you're talking about now, the the janky, that's produced by somebody who was artists that worked for kid robot stuff or what exactly is that for people who don't know paul budnitz was the guy who started kid robot and came up with the idea of the dunny and so he's he's like running super plastic and making the janky and huck g was like one of the original dunny artists and he had done tons of stuff with kid robot and he's the creative director or whatever if you look at the toy you can say oh huck designed that so that's you know it's kind of basically the rundown yeah and uh, just huck used to work back in the day at the kid robot san francisco and they started doing oh, that's designs right. and all that stuff and then um the other big thing was you know paul kind of came up with that idea of like let's make a platform toy and then he had tristan um you know design the actual character so tristan eaton designed right. the dunny and the money and the kid robot bot which was like the kid robot robot figure back in the day and those were like huge staples of designer toys in the mid 2000s yeah and the dunny i mean still to this day i i feel like as a platform, the Dunny is the like pinnacle of platform toy. Oh yeah, definitely. There's something to do with like the little off, like the stance, the like little bit of fact that it's not perfectly symmetrical. There's something about it. Just, just it, it is the platform. It, it, there's a reason it's number one. Right. Well, it's like the Coca-Cola of designer toys. You know, it's like it was the first, it was the, the you know, the biggest, the best, you know, in its, in its time. Do you think it's going to stay with NECA or do you think it's going to move on? I don't know. I don't, I don't really pay attention to Kid Robot that much anymore. I mean, like, you know. Well, like, that, that's kind of why I'm asking. I, I think that it's kind of dying off more and more of the art toy side. So I, I wonder if NECA sells off the dunny to somebody. Well, I mean, aren't they gonna, won't they just like do some more licensed stuff? You know, I mean, like, it seems like to me, like, don't they do licensed dunnies now? Like, you know, Wolverine dunny and all that stuff. So, so they, they did the DC series. I think that's the only licensed dunny they've done. Uh, oh, okay. It was a big, big tank. It did not do well. So I, I think they're right. done licensing the dunny. But then they 
Didn't they do like the Warhol ones? Those have got to be licensed and stuff. Yeah, I guess those are technically licensed. Yeah, those, those those ones did yeah. do well on the Basquiat's as well. Yeah. That's, well, those that's, yeah, it's, that's more art toy though than, yeah, than yeah. like you know than than Wolverine. Like I know that, that they had a lot of Marvel Labbits for a while and stuff. You know. Yeah, they did. They definitely they definitely had those and the DC Labbits. Right. Um, but like, you know, I really feel like that you know NECA came in. You know, they saw the success of Funko. And they, they really wanted to get into more stylized product based on the licenses they already had access to. Right. Yeah. And I think that's what they saw Kid Robot as. But, you know, bringing in Frank, Frank still kept the idea that, okay, yeah, we'll do this license stuff, but we need to make art toys. But my guess is, is that it's not being as profitable as it should be. And it's probably, you know, NECA's like, okay, we gave you some time, but, you know, it's not working out. That that's my that's my personal feeling. I have no insider knowledge of that, but that's what I my I would assume because as Corey had stated, we're seeing less and less of that original art product and more and more of the licensed Kid Robot product. Right. So so NECA bought Kid Robot. Yes. By the way, I mean like as far as licensed product are concerned, NECA makes amazing action figures. They make amazing toys. These Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles toys they're putting out through Target right now are amazing. They do great stuff. Yeah, they used to do like amazing. Like, did they do the movie Maniac series after McFarlane was doing it? They kind of. They think it's called Movie Reels or something. Movie like Reels, that. that's what it was. Yeah, they had great details, and they definitely were great in that kind of field. So I guess it makes sense to kind of buy something that's a little bit easier to produce. Yeah, and also too with the you know, the collectibles market, um, as far as you know, getting toys into like the airport, you'll see Funko Pops at this point. It's easier to sell like a little chibi version of something than like a twenty five dollar action figure. So like that, that's probably what they were looking to do. Or at least that's my personal opinion on the matter. Like I said, I have no insider knowledge, but. I mean, if I was a business guy, I'd be looking at it like, well, they've already have a brand. They already have a brand name. We can take this to Toys R Us and get these things on the shelves, or we can get them at, you know, like different bookstores and different things. And this will be, this will all be great. But the art side of it never was a hugely profitable business. I mean, if you listen to Paul Budnance and like a couple of interviews he's talked about, the fact was, is that while they were selling out toys everywhere and having these huge lines and like all this stuff, they had a lot of overhead and it was hard to make it profitable because the number numbers weren't as big as you would think they would be you know and it's and it's just hard to make a company like that profitable um even back in the day i would imagine in order to make it profitable you would have to you would have to make the kind of numbers that turn people off you know what i mean like you you, you know instead of having a run of 1500 you have to have a run of 30,000 and then you're like oh eh it's like gumball machine stuff, you know? And the only way to really make that happen is to get a license for The Simpsons, which was like the first big license toy they really did, right? You know, The Simpsons and then the Futurama right. ones that followed that. And then from there, it's like, that's how you pay your payroll, right? You know, like, and pay your overhead and all that kind of stuff. And then it just kind of snowballs. And once you, you know, kind of get into that licensed product, you know, it becomes, you become attached to it because it's how you pay your payroll. It's how you, you know, keep overhead costs and everything paid for. And then suddenly you look back and you're like, why am I making this art toy? It's not paying the bills anymore. You know, it's actually where we might be losing money on it, you know. And that's kind of kind of what happens. And as you get a company that's growing and becoming bigger and becoming a bigger beast that requires more, you know, monthly income to be able to pay for things, that's where it gets harder and harder to make the thing that's maybe we break even on or maybe we're not profitable on because 
we have to pay the bills, right? It's a company. That's what, that's what it is. And I think that's that's kind of what happened when you see Paul leave the company, right? Based on the interviews and stuff I've seen, you know, listened to and stuff like that, is eventually it's like, well, this isn't the art project that I started out with. So, you know, it's time for me to go make bicycles, right? That's what he did when he left Kid Robot. And that's his mindset, you know? That's Paul's an amazing genius, no denying that. But, you know, if, if he gets bored with something, he moves on, right? Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's I mean, I think that's I think the the real saving grace is, is that it's going to be the small producers that are really kind of they're the ones who are going to be making the stuff that people are interested in collecting still. You know what I mean? Because they are going to be the small things and they're not necessarily they're OK. Maybe not necessarily like, you know, hopefully everybody makes their money back now, like a Chris Reiniak. You know, he puts figures out all the time, but, you know, he's not a kid robot, but he can make them because you keep seeing them. You know what I mean? Like more keep coming out. So it's and it's great to see that kind of stuff, you know, and like the guy who's got enough money to make some Sufubi character just because he wants to. You know, I mean, that's pretty cool. You know, it's an interesting little world. The toy land. Yeah, definitely. It, uh, you know, and it's not uh, it's not easy to make these things happen. But it, you know, the people that get behind them and the small producers, most of them just love the projects. And um, you know, hopefully they can you know, at least break even or make money off of it, so they can just keep going. You know, instead of having to you know shutter everything. But luckily, a lot of the smaller companies probably don't have as much overhead, um, so they can kind of you know keep they can kind of make things on a shoestring budget and keep it, keep it working. I'm going to plug myself here. That's kind of why I enjoy working with uh, tenacious toys. You know, when I do stuff, you know, a couple of years ago, I put out a character that I do called Rocky from this little comic that I have called Satanic kids. Like on that one, we did a, I wanted to do a run of 13 because I wanted, I, you know, I wanted to keep it small. I wanted to keep it, you know, keep it tight. And I wanted to, you know, you know, at the end of the day, I didn't want a giant, I didn't want crates of fucking, toys sitting around you know what i mean so like i was like hey let's do a really small run that's great and then you know uh, we recently just worked together again on this on this new line that i'm working on called kaijin mundial which is uh basically all the you know a lot of the kaiju toys that are popular are all based on these kind of bootleg card you know trading cards that came out when when the designers were like kids that they all had and so i found like this line of of bootleg monster cards that came out in Europe in the eighties that nobody's hit up, you know, as nobody has discovered, like, I don't know if they haven't discovered it or, you know, whatever, but I found this whole treasure trove of these like Pachi monsters. And so, you know, I hit up, I hit up Benny and I was like, Hey dude, let's do this in resin. So I've got this character called uh, Waldemar, which is this amazing card from the series. That's like basically like a Lon Chaney werewolf head on top of a penguin body, <laughs> you know, <laughs> And it's and and it's funny because you're kind of like, well, that's kind of random. If you see the card and then you see the figure that Nemo uh, Nemo sculpted the figure, it's got this totally sinister head on this comical penguin body. You know what I mean? And uh, and it's like a really great kind of combination of both things. You know, it's got you know it's got one in one on one hand it's totally ridiculous and on the other hand it's totally badass. You know, <laughs> so but it's great. You know, when you're working with working with resin or something like that, you don't have to do like you don't have to like put the farm on the line in order to produce something and you can have just a nice amount keep the keep the people the collector folk happy yeah for sure um i think it was five points 2017 at benny's booth is how i discovered you um from your rocky figure no oh, get out really oh that's funny yeah yeah that was yeah. yeah that was a fun show i have to say uh five points fest is like you know i mean uh, like i have to be honest i hate new york comic-con <laughs> you know it's like <laughs> it's such a fucking madhouse you know what i mean it's just like and being a New Yorker, 
and especially up in that neighborhood, it's like being stuck behind an entire Javits Center is full of slow tourists. And, you know, if you're a New Yorker and you're walking around behind slow tourists, the first thing you want to do is start beheading people. So for me, it's fucking infuriating because like, and you know, I get it. Everyone's looking at stuff and, you know, but it's just like the, just like, it just moves too slow and there's too many people. So, I, you know, I really like five points because it's like all the best part of Comic-Con without like, you know, the fucking slow assholes everywhere, <laughs> you know? I think the other thing, I mean, the, the good thing about five points too is just the, it has the homegrown feel that I think the block had at one point. Yeah, you know? Totally. Yeah, the block was great. When they had the block, that was fantastic. Yeah. That was definitely that was definitely cool. And it was like because it wasn't really like it was like it wasn't really a part of New York Comic Con. It was like yeah. a separate entity. And it was like they got it. And like all the people who had booths there got it. And because you used to you used to do stuff there every year yeah. with uh who'd you do stuff with? What was the name of that that those uh, crew? Uh Balance Brooklyn. How you would do stuff with them and I'd do stuff with uh, Sugar Fueled. Um just a couple of different. I kind of bounce around, right? Uh, and then the the last year when we I had the booth with Boundless. I mean, like right behind us, you know, it, this was supposed to be like you know the 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 block, the the smaller company area. And you turn mm-hmm. around, it's a gigantic progressive booth. You know, it was like a Geico. Oh, booth. that's right. I remember that. It was like yeah. the gecko, like the the. It was like the. Uh, it was like the friggin' gecko or yeah. something like that, right? Yeah. And it was just like it was, I don't know. It was just like a huge letdown. You know, it's just yeah, like, definitely. It's like, you know, people aren't going to want to even, you know, come down this way if they see that, you know, they don't care to, well, to buy just, car insurance at Comic-Con. Well, <laughs> I think part of it was, was that, you know, it was just kind of a statement was like, you know what, this, uh, this, this land is valuable. Yeah. These guys are willing to pay for it. And yep. so you guys are on your way out because <laughs> there's going to be a lot more progressive auto insurance folks coming to like, you know to to sh- sell their garbage you know what i mean and like it, yeah. it seemed like it got smaller it kept on getting smaller until now it doesn't exist right i to be honest i haven't done it in i think two years well, now. The, the block is gone i mean yeah I, like now that now it's like they they still kind of put people in the same area but there's not a there's not a block there's know, no which I thought was yeah right which i thought was actually that 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 kind of was nice because it kind of pulled everything together and like you know kind of get every give everybody a focus you know what i mean like you know, okay we'll go over to the block and hang out there and skip the rest you know yeah yeah and, and really it had like a prominent space in that new york in the javits center it was kind of like off on its on that own area over there and it was kind of like it was clear that this was like a separate entity from the actual new york comic-con yeah, yeah. just then it just slowly moved back 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 more into the corner Right, and, yeah. and that was it. Yeah, that's where everything yeah. is now. It's like it's like in the same area, kind of, yeah. but it's all pushed in the corner now. Yeah, yeah, because when it was in the front there, like as soon as you walked in, it was like perfect. You know, it was like yeah, people actually saw your booths and they they cared. Now they're basically going to get a churro and they walk by you. <laughs> yeah, totally, a nine dollar churro, and they're like, "Robots will kill." I didn't know you. I didn't know you were here. So I go, thanks. And what's even better too is that every year, so I I always apply for the the professional badge or whatever it's called. Right. And I think it's the past like two years, or I applied for it and they turned me down. I'm sitting there, I'm what? like, okay, no problem. But then they send me surveys on asking me about like my experience and all this shit, and I'm like. I don't think you care about my experience. That is weird that they shut that they turn you down because you've been there for years. Yeah, I remember at one point. So when we ran the blog, Urban Mile Daily, 
we would oft, often get approved for press badges at like New York Comic Con, C2E2, um, you know, Designer Con, wherever we were going, we would pretty much get approved for these these passes, right? And there was one point I applied for a New York Comic Con one and they wrote back and they're like, you know, this this information you provided is not correct. And the information I provided is like, I want to cover the block. I'm here to specifically cover this area. And they're like, unfortunately, uh, your site does not cover anything that's going on at New York Comic Con, basically, is what the email said. And it's like, yeah, wait, but the block is still there. <laughs> right. Oh, man. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, I think, it. you know, it's it's, it's pretty, it's pretty, it's what, second to San Diego Comic Con now right so yeah I'm sure it's easy to, to lose the lose the thread you know with i think i read somewhere where maybe a year or two ago it actually had more attendees than san diego comic-con oh wow yeah, yeah the numbers wild. the numbers i think two years ago beat beat it that's wild and that's partially because i think because in san diego they've outgrown that convention center so much they have so much going on outside of the convention center now oh right because there's so much it's so hard to get tickets to the actual convention center they've moved so much stuff off the convention center where you don't need a badge to go to it yeah all the um, safubi guys like get a storefront for a weekend and and hang out somewhere in san diego which has got nothing to do with the with the the actual comic-con area well yeah and i mean even like you know super seven and stuff they have those huge like off-site things and you know it's just it the whole thing has changed so much because that convention center they've they've just maxed it out well i mean they did the same thing with the javits but the problem is there's nothing near it and they 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 have like panels and stuff at hammerstein ballroom which is multiple blocks and avenues away and it's like that's pretty far away (laughs) like yeah i I know that and i'm not even from new york (laughs) (laughs) so it's so it's like i remember like seeing stuff and i'm like by the time I had even try to get over to that and then back to the booth, it just was pointless. You know, it's like right. it's defeating almost. You know, it's like it's, it, it, the the people who go to it, they have you you have to have a game plan. Like you're there for panels or you're there for floor. You know, you're like you can't do both anymore. I remember years ago going to panels and they basically would allow people to sit through panels all day and not even leave. So. If you want, if there was somebody going for like the the Walking Dead panel that was at two o'clock, they would be there at nine o'clock in the morning, just taking up space, ruining right. it for anybody who's going for like the the Haven panel or this panel, whatever <laughs> panel, you know, and and they had like bathrooms right there and food carts, so they didn't have to leave, and that right. just like it just sucks for like somebody who's like I just wanted to see this panel. Well, and the other thing too, from like a, a traveling in perspective, Javits is it's really hard to get like a reasonable hotel. That's the first thing. And then two, and then two, it's just, it's just hard to get around that area. I guess you would say like from a, if you're staying anywhere, that's not right near there. There's nothing over there. I mean, now, now there's the train line that somewhat goes near it. But I like when I was, when I lived in the city in the nineties, that area, I mean, it was just desolate at night. Yeah. It was the sticks. Yeah. I mean, the only thing we used to go over there was to go skate because there was like a, like an abandoned kind of park with like ledges and stuff. And mm-hmm. the only thing that were over there were the horses from like the carriages were like over right. there. And then hookers. That was it. Like, well, that was, that it. was the, yeah. I mean, like, it's funny. It's like Chelsea was all like desert. I mean, deserted or not Chelsea, but like the meatpacking district was deserted oh, at nighttime. Yeah. And it was always super sketchy. Like, not like you get robbed super sketchy, but there was always, it was Trans- chock full of all the un- unsavory characters. <laughs> it, was, it was transvestite hookers. <laughs> yep, totally. I, we used to totally. we used to go to. I don't know if you remember. There was a club down there called the Cooler. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I played and, a show there. Oh, really? That's awesome. Yeah, that's actually that's I, I the oh. that's where the show where I get, yes. used the name Abe Lincoln Jr. That's where I got the name from. I remember we talked about that. That's yep. right. Yeah, that, that uh, when you did the play, the like the show play kind of. That's a cool story. I mean, so I go by Abe Lincoln Jr. Um, what happened was, you know, I lived with my two homeboys from that I grew up with. Uh, and so the 90s were all around and like they're musicians. I'm not a musician. And so basically, long story short was that they became singer songwriters and they were just singing about feelings and, right. you know, and like, you know, emotions and things like that. And I was just kind of like, all right, well, that's lovely. <laughs> but rem- remember, remember when you guys used to rip? And uh, so I, so basically, I don't I don't play music at all. You know, somebody gave me a bass and I started writing hardcore songs about the Civil War. And so I started this band called Gettysburg Express. And that's where the Abe Lincoln Jr. name came from uh, as I was the singer. Uh, and I would dress up in an orange convict suit that had a big gun silkscreen on the back. And I wore a top hat and a fake beard. And so I'd sing all these hardcore songs about the Civil War from like Abe Lincoln's point of view. And it was definitely like, you know, I made a point of writing them like from kind of a third grade history book <laughs> perspective because I wasn't a musician. I basically mushed together all my favorite punk rock songs. <laughs> you know, I take a little bit of this song and drop in a little bit of that song and, you know, and, and stuff like that. And uh, I made my singer songwriter friends play, you know, I'm like, Hey guys, I don't know anybody who plays music. You really get, I need you guys to play with me. And they're like, well, okay, I guess so. And then they were like, Oh, that's right. We fucking like playing. We forgot. We like just playing this kind of music. And then they started, new bands that actually rocked out of that um, awesome. so awesome. yeah it was like it was because i was tired of going to shows at the you know at the sidewalk cafe and, and, and hearing <laughs> and hearing about how upset people were you know what i mean so i i can't tell you how many times i saw my friend's band at the sidewalk the humans i don't know if you ever if you remember them. No, i don't know they were these just two big guys they were twins and they sang these like folky weird <laughs> But it was like punk, folky, weird stuff. Like it, it was obscure to the point where it was actually good. Oh, it, okay. It, so it, it actually worked. The sidewalk, Jesus, that place. Well, it was, it was funny because we used to like, you know, I mean, it, it was funny like when when CBs went under. I moved out here in '91, and it was like if your band couldn't get a gig at CBs, there was something seriously wrong with your band. <laughs> It was like anybody could play at CBs. It wasn't like a big deal. You know what I mean? I remember like people being all outraged about it. Like, oh, it's closing down. And it sucked that it closed down. But, you know, at the same time, it was kind of like it wasn't like it was good or anything at that well, point. You know what I well, mean? The, the floor was the scariest thing in the world. I mean, the, the it was it was amazing how it was like part wood, part dirt. It felt like it was weird because it, you know, it, it had its there was this huge waves. I mean, like when they stopped doing the matinees and like the, the late 80s you know people were pissed and then they started doing it again in like the mid 90s and it kind of like brought life back to, into cbs and then right then it started dying out again and then before like it was looking like it was going to close down they actually kind of got life back into it. it it's crazy that's a freaking clothing store now i don't know well that dude that dude is in particular is a fucking douche like i went in there once just to trip out on it and it's like mm-hmm. they just go to thrift stores and they buy vintage t-shirts and they sell them there for 600 bucks it's insane. You know, it's like, you know, like an Almond Brothers shirt that you probably saw a million times when you were a kid. You know what I mean? And it's like it's there at 600 bucks. And it's like the whole thing is just fucking revolting to me. You know, it's insane. That place it's, just pisses me off. It kills me that he left all of like 
the walls the way they were. Like, yeah, exactly. Like just like, the... You're just ca- capitalizing off of its legacy, yeah. you know? If you yeah. just, like, cleared it out and made it all pretty and nice, fine. You know what I mean? Yeah. Okay, cool, you know? But, yeah, but, like, that it's, like, just, like, bargaining off of CB's, like, you know, legacy is totally just fucking scummy. Talking to you is, it just reminds me of, like, you've always had these great ideas and projects. Like, even, like, when we met back in, like, you know, early 2000s, I remember, like, you doing the shows at um, the Orchard Street Gallery. Right. Um, and you always had, like, a good idea behind it. It was like you had, you had the ability to execute the art but you also had a good project and idea about it like you did the the menus and stuff like that for the one show right which was rad um right yeah that was the that was uh i had um started doing uh i made up fake menus for like a, a fake mexican restaurant and all of the items on the menu were totally repulsive and I would go around to to Soho galleries and say, hey, there's a new Mexican restaurant. Do you guys want a menu? <laughs> and they'd go put it in their drawer, you know, and I'd be I, and I'd walk around and hand them out to people on the street, you know. And then, then you know, where it says no on the doors in New York, a lot of them say no menus because you just get a shit ton of crappy menus from Chinese restaurants and stuff. So I'd make a point of sticking them under those doors. And then I made a show based around that. And then. The show was uh, called Taqueria Pendejo. That was the name of the menu. Uh, I made Happy Meals, basically. Uh, and so I got tacos from a local taco place, San Loco. And uh, and then I sold T-shirts and beer, you know, like as like, you know, in a, in a Happy Meal box that I had created a bunch of Happy Meal boxes. So, yeah, that was like that was a lot of fun to do. That was like uh, that was my first solo show. And that was like, yeah, that was at the Scooville place at Orchard Street. That had to be like. 2004 2005 yeah something, something like that 2004 i think Jeez. it was i know Jeez. a long time ago God. A long time ago <laughs> chris let yeah. me ask you a question like out of all like the street art that's going on now is there anybody that you're particularly feeling that you're thinking like you know that you're like oh man these guys are fucking awesome okay so unfortunately i'm gonna have to ask the question when you say street art do you mean actual street art or do you mean like mirrorless street art there's a lot of good stickers out there. There's a lot of good sticker yes. people out there. Like I love like One Tooth and and Kanor, yeah. like Kanor yeah. and Fling. Like those guys, I think they have a lot of great stickers. As far as like posters or weed paste or anything like that, personally, I miss the days of like Venge doing full full on like oil paintings and putting them up. Nowadays, everybody kind of does that like Dane ripoff. Or even like what what uh, Billy Kidd was doing back in the day, where he was just a you know a collage of stickers, you know, on on a a larger image, and right. you know, and I just think that so many people kind of do that, and I, I mean, I don't really think there's anything that that jumps out that I, I think is like overly impressive in that sense. Like, but sticker wise, I mean, like I love zero productivity. I love yeah, his, he's great. His stickers, um, I just think like you were saying before about the hand drawn stickers. I've always been, I've always gravitated towards hand-drawn stickers, especially up, because they just, they definitely had something more. Um, right. I love, like, Joselle's work. Whoops is sick. And Johnny Undead, is that it? Oh, yeah, he does. He's those, fucking great. Those pieces are great. I love his Yeah, stuff. definitely. Uh, definitely. It's it's funny, because it's like, you know, in, in one way, I'm, like, super cranky about street art and kind of how it's just kind of... It, it it's been subsumed by the machine now and it's yeah. like and, and it's perfectly okay 
you know, like uh, like Phoebe is doing ads for Victoria Beckham's makeup line with her street art. Wait, you know? Really? Yeah, really? dude. Yeah, if you walk around, like there's all these there's all these uh, there's all these posters up of it's Phoebe's stuff, and she's like, "Has Victoria Beckham's looking for me or something like that?" And so yeah, she's doing like she's a straight up in bed with them, which you know, whatever. You know? I guess that's I guess I guess that's the end goal. I mean, I guess. But it's but it's whack. It's like I mean to me that's whack. Like Wordsmith did like a did a quote unquote collab with Tom's shoes, and I think it was for charity, so it's like less lame. But that's just I mean you know it, it's just like to me that's just kind of cashing in on street arts underground weird shit just to do fucking you know bullshit. The street artists want to complain when an ad gets put over their stuff, but if they're in the ad, there's no problem with it. Like I said before, in the early 2000s, there was no such thing as street art. It wasn't like a term that people used and threw around. We were like the contemporary artists that were borderline graffiti because it wasn't sanctioned. You know, and and it was like, I don't know, it's, it's so weird to me that a lot of the people who were so... You know, creating this like subgenre, this subculture kind of thing, are so quick to jump into culture, into the the mainstream. Right. You know, it's like that saying that sometimes it's more powerful. No is more powerful than yes. Right. And like, I just think that the the quote unquote street art scene could use more of that right now. And I know I'm 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 jaded and grumpy about it and whatever, but me too. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it, it is amazing to me that, you know, you have, you know, Coach and all these like big brands that literally just like, it's almost like in the, in the early 80s, what happened with graffiti artists and galleries and how they were also ready to pull in these graffiti guys. But then once they saw they had to take care of them, they just wanted to kind of like ditch them on the doorstep kind of. Right, and, right. And that, that's what's going to happen here. You know, every art movement has a shelf life, just like you guys were talking about with the toys, you know. Right. there's going to be a few people who stick and hold out. You know, it's like abstract expression. It's not the cat's pajamas like it was in like the 50s. But there's those people who stuck around and, you know, are still worth money or still put out good work. Right now, street art's in this really weird, like, thing where it's like everybody just wants to do it. And if you did, like, you know, three things two years ago, you think you're old school. Right. You you think you're an OG. It's like, uh, like I said, I'm jaded about it. Well, it's, it's weird to me because it's like there's so much talk about like, you know, boo one percent. <laughs> but in the art world, that's the, the, you know, that's the end game is to get in with the one percenters, which I'm kind of like, I'm, you know, I mean, I don't do art shows anymore because I just don't dig them. You know what I mean? Like it just like the whole hustle sucks. So I just quit doing yeah. them. You know what I mean? I'm like, I just go put up shit in the street. Fuck it. But it's like so, you know, I've been questioning that a lot. I'm like, is the whole game to go fucking, you know, sell your shit to rich assholes, you know, in Miami? <laughs> you know, yeah, is that is that the is that the end game? Because if that's it. You know, I mean, like there's like not many people who do art like, you know, there's a lot of people do affordable art, but I think that they're not necessarily doing affordable art because they'd rather be selling fucking big money paintings to rich folks. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, I mean, there's there's also there's a tier system in, in street art that I don't think people even realize. There's the upper echelon of the cause and the right crash and days and, you know, like those kind of guys. Then there's like a middle level that can do really powerful shows and good work on the street and can sell work. And then there's kind of like the, the entry level, you know, (laughs) you know, it's shitty to say. And, and I, you know, I hate 
that it is like that. But, all right, you've been doing this long enough that if somebody offers you a show and they said the show is for a weekend, does that make sense to you? No, I wouldn't do it. <laughs> right. Because because here's the reason. This is this is why I, I look at it this way and feel this way. You're putting out work that should be strong work that if you can create enough work to do a show for a weekend, that work might be questionable then. Right. Because... Well, you're banging it out. Right. As shitty as it sounds, a lot of people just like to put what they might put on the street on a canvas and call it a piece and call it done. Right. To me, personally, I don't don't think that's... I think there's something... There's a misconnect there. Because if you're putting it out on the street and it's viewable for free and everything, this, that, next thing... How could it be just as powerful in a gallery where it's right. it's quote unquote legit and, and legal? That's my thing with like that whole like idea of just kind of cranking out work. Like it amazes me when like somebody just reaches out to me and they're like, Oh, we have a show on, on this weekend, you have some work? I'm like, No, no, I don't. Like <laughs> it's like I don't. You know, it's like uh, oh, you don't have you know pieces in reserve? I'm like, No, I I honestly don't. I'm like, I just, I don't, I don't get that. You know, it's like, right. Well, it's funny. Cause like, you know, one of the, one of the upsides and the downsides of doing the Dunny for kid robot was, is all of a sudden I was on the urban art scene, you know, and I've got known on the urban art scene and I was asked to do a lot of shows like, Hey, be in our show. And like a lot of them were pop culture shows and uh, you know, and things like that, like there were themed shows or whatever, you know, and part of the reason why I started hating doing art shows was because of like, you know, like, hey, you want to be in our Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles show? And yeah. then, you know, like, I'm like, no, I, didn't, I never watched Teenage Mutant I'm too old for the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> you know, I don't like G.I. Joe either. But like, you know, I was making art just to make stuff for a show. You know what I mean? And like, that's, you know, and I really got down on making art and I got tired of it. And I was like, eh, that sucks. I don't want to do this anymore. And then uh, at one point I was like, I quit doing art shows and started doing what the fuck I felt like again. And I was like, oh, that's right. This is great. I love doing this. You know right. what I mean? Because you, you're, you're going back to that route of picking up a marker because you saw something that inspired you or you wanted to write your name on something. You know, it's like right. it's that primal route that that just like the reason why you started it. That, and that's like kind of like what I've been kind of trying to focus on lately is that is painting to paint, not painting to sell. And, right. you know, it's like, I think there's a lot of people, and, and this could be because I do have a nine to five, you know, and that might be my outlook on it because I'm not trying to sell work to get a new Maserati. You know, like I'm not right. trying to sell work to, you know, to feed the family. Like I'm doing the work because I love doing the work still. Right. But yeah, I have, I have the, the nine, boat. yeah, I have the nine to five that keeps the roof over the head, keeps the, the medical coverage you know yep. so we're it, it's funny because i much prefer having a day job to having to do the art hustle you know what i mean because yeah. trying to keep you I mean not even get a maserati keeping the lights on selling art like paying an electric bill that's 20 bucks a month is hard when you're selling out when all you're doing is selling art you know it's true and it's and, a fucking it's a brutal it's a brutal uh you know gig and, and see that's why i think a lot of these people who do sell art for a living i think a lot of them either have have or come from some kind of money because because if you're looking at some you know some of the work that's out there that's you know people are selling all the time supposedly you know you're you gotta sell a lot of paintings at 200 dollars a piece in order to make rent 
you know? Right, right, yeah. Especially if the gallery's totally. taking 50% of that, you know? it's I know a bunch of folks that are straight up just rich kids, which mm-hmm. is fine, you know? If you've got the luxury of being able to, to have that yeah. cushion and you can just do it, cool, good for you. But the hype that surrounds them is like, you know, like, oh, they're from the mean streets. And it's like, you ain't <laughs> from the fucking mean streets. You're from Long Island or wherever the hell, you know, whatever rich suburb you're from. And, you know, and again, that and that's fine. But like, you know, like, don't front, you know, like, I think everybody's jumping on street art because it's supposed to be outlaw shit. But it hasn't been outlaw shit for, I don't know, 10 years. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? It's sure. like, you know, it, it's in the same way that the spray can has become this overused symbol of rebellion. <laughs> you know, and most of it is by people who don't actually use spray cans. You know, what I mean? it, it's it's the Tasmanian devil of the tattoo world. Yeah, it's like yeah, it's, yeah, totally, <laughs> it totally is. Yeah, it's definitely it, it, it's definitely a weird time, you know, and like an art basil is going on or basil or whatever you want uh, to say it right I, now, and like everybody flocks down there to go fucking do their thing, and that's cool, whatever. Anything I've seen so far from it, I'm just like, hey, I'm okay staying up here in the cold, I guess. Right. You, know, you know what? I like the guy with the banana the tape. I think he's got oh. balls. You know, I think that's hilarious. That cracked me up. And he called it the comedian. I think that's fucking yeah. great. I'm yeah. like, dude is getting over so hard. That's why I like Jeff Koons, because the dude gets over so hard. You know, I told him, like, hats off to you. You're fucking... Oh, yeah. The fucking he, game is fucking insane, you know? He, he, took, he, took, he took the Warhol uh, handbook and just ran with it. Yeah, totally. You know, I, I totally love, I totally, like, I genuinely love all the, like, whatever he does. Ever since he did that, like, you know, the the uh, Michael Jackson, the chimp statue, the chimp I was statue. like, all right, this guy fucking rules. So for anybody who, you know, was listening and, and didn't happen to see this amazing piece, it's a an art gallery. He's represented by an art gallery, I think, in Paris. It's a banana duct tape to the wall, and it was selling for 125000 it's gone up to 150,000 now. Oh, really? Yeah, he's got an edition uh, oh, of 3. Right. No, it's it's he does like an edition. Apparently he does editions of 3. He also did that gold toilet that was in the Guggenheim and that was stolen. Yeah, it got stolen when it went to to London or something, but like basically he he had it you go to a, you go to the Guggenheim and you can take a dump in it if you wanted to, you know what I mean? So, yeah. I I appreciate his sense of humor, you know what I mean? The guy's got balls. He's obviously got some kind of backer if he could get a gold toilet made. Jesus. Yeah, definitely, definitely. But you know, it's it's a whole commentary on the whole contemporary art world and just the art world in general. Even if you hate Banksy and what he does, I mean, the fact that he can he can get people talking and and actually interested in art and actually paying attention to art is impressive. Right. I think he's fucking, I think he's awesome. I like some of his stuff better than others, but I always, I just think he's fucking on point and he's fucking uh, always hilarious. You know what I mean? So absolutely. absolutely. You know. I mean that, that whole thing he did years ago when he, ins- he installed paintings in, in all the major art uh, yeah. museums in New York, that was just insane. I mean, yeah. like, and they, and they hung for at least some time. Right. You know, it's like stuff like that. I mean, you know, a lot of people want to hate on him and, and Shepard and, you know, and a lot of people who think who hate on these guys don't actually understand that Banksy came from a graffiti background. Right. You know, well, uh, the thing I think is funny is, is that everybody hates on Shepard Ferry. And I'm like, he's the reason any of us are doing this. Uh, dude, you when know, I, he was the first guy that made this shit like, you know, like not graffiti, but like punk rock street art shit. He made that 
legit for galleries. And he's kind of the reason why we're all able to do whatever the fuck we're doing now, you know, because yeah. he broke that barrier, you know? Yeah. When I met him in like 98 at, at the gallery, actually next to CBGB's when he had a show there, he would have already been arrested like 13 times. I mean, right. so obviously he was putting in the work, you know, it's yeah. not like, I mean, granted nowadays it might be different, but he put in work. Yeah, a lot of people, totally. a lot of people who hate on him don't put in any work. Yeah, it's funny. You know, it, it, it's, uh, it's, I think, kind of the thing, I think the difference between, you know, back when we were running around starting, you know, in the beginning of like the street arts takeoff and now it's like uh, I had done this interview with some magazine, like not a magazine, some website or something like that. And this was like, like one of my first interviews that I ever did. And they were like, what do you like about street art? And then, and I was like, well, it's like, we're all advertising, but we don't have anything to sell, <laughs> you know, cause we didn't, nobody was selling anything. Yeah. Like, you know, you'd have art shows or whatever, but it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like this branding machine. And then I just recently read an art, an interview with another street artist who shall remain unnamed, who was like, you know, we're all advertising. Like, you know, we're all trying, you know, we're all trying to sell stuff, which is exactly the opposite of kind of what attracted to me in the first place. And that's comedy. why it's comedy. But it, it is true in the sense of, I mean, in in the early 2000s, no gallery wanted to show what we were doing because right. or it was like it was like an underground gallery. Right. Right. You know? Well, that was the thing is like, you know, I mean, those early shows were like, you know, to me. Like, I, you know, I saw Black Flag and, you know, Circle Jerks and stuff in tiny little clubs. You know, it wasn't like at a fucking festival. Right. You know, uh, to me, it was like it was the same thing. It was like the, they, these were the, these underground art shows that were akin to seeing an old like going to a, a hardcore show back in the day. You yeah, know, and, and just like, as opposed to like going to see fucking Phil Collins, you know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> so and and just like that, you know, it eventually blows up and gets ruined, you know, and. Green well, now we're comes in and, we're in the warp tour part of street art now. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I gotta, I gotta be grumpy at some point. Well, hey, you know, me when me and Chris get together, it's like a gathering of the grumpy minds. So, yeah. <laughs> the curmudgeon. Chris pulls out his box and starts putting his fist up and just starts yelling at the kids on yep. the lawn. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Like in one hand, you know. Yep. Definitely. <laughs> So we've been talking for a while, guys, so let's uh, go ahead and uh, start wrapping this episode up. Abe, if you want to go ahead and let everybody know where they can find you out on the uh, social medias. My Instagram is Abe Lincoln Jr., Abe Lincoln Jr. Uh, on Instagram. Same thing with Facebook. My portfolio site's girlsbike.com. My shop is ablincolnjr.com. I've got lots of uh, sticker packs and assorted weirdness for sale up there. You can go check that out. Let's see. That's pretty much. That's pretty much all the stuff that I keep going i don't mess with twitter and pinterest and all that stuff you mean you, you don't have your pinterest account live anymore <laughs> i have a massive pinterest following because i was an early i was early on you're an early adapter yeah and they featured me and i have like i think i have like twenty thousand followers on pinterest but i just never do it uh, on the next episode can you explain to me what pinterest is <laughs> hey listen at least i don't have uh mca's uh website it's a little out of date is it? <laughs> just a little so uh chris if you want to go ahead and let everybody know where they can find you uh you can find me at chris rwk or at robots will kill i i would like to say one thing um i just want to say thank you to everybody who reached out to me about my uh puppy uh passing 
I appreciate it. You know, I had a lot of people who reached out, and I just want to say thank you. I got to follow that. Oh, man. You can find me yeah, on this, all the social medias at StrangeCatToys and StrangeCatToys.com. And I am Travis Likens. You can find me at UVD Toys on Instagram, uh, Facebook, and then you can go to UVDToys.com and check out all the products that we're putting out over the next couple of months or so. So um, this has been the Urban Robot Cat Podcast. This is the show about art and people who make it. <laughs>